Uh, it's good to see everybody. Um, go ahead and find Psalm chapter 65. We'll look at just verse 8 tonight. Um, we're going to continue our study of those, uh, what I called last week, hallmarks of the uh, New Testament church, things that we know that, that we need to um, put to use, um, start to, to see evident within our own church. Um, this one comes from Acts 2.43. I'll read that to you. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So this idea of awe. Awe is that second one. And so we'll, we'll start to look at that, that single word, that phrase, that idea. Back in, in Psalm 65, verse 8, uh, the psalmist writes, uh, So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. And I pray, Father God, that I do it um, in, in, in the best way, Father God, that I can, Lord. I pray, God, that my prayers and my study today have not been in vain, Father, but they've been heard by you, Father, that you respond to them, Lord, with power, with passion, Father God, with clarity. Uh, you'll bless me, Father God, to be able to communicate clearly what I'm what I have to say, Lord, that there's nothing obscure about it, Father God, or necessarily complex, but that everything that I say, Father God, would be pointed and and clear and ready for people to hear and act upon, Father. At the same time, Father God, I pray God for you to widen our hearts. Because I understand, God, that no man or no woman really, God, lends themselves to the scriptures, Father God. None of us wants to do any differently than we are doing right now, Father God. And so for that reason, we know, God, that you have to provide that impetus. You have to show us how, Father. So pray, God, that in this room tonight, Lord, that you show us how to do this. How to hear your word, Father God, when it's preached, and how to respond to it. Father God, we love and adore you. We thank you, Father God, for everything you've given us. But more than anything else, Father God, we lift up praise today, Father God, over the name of Jesus Christ, who died, Father God, for our sins. In the name of Christ, Lord, I humbly pray now, Lord. Amen. So, uh, we're talking about awe. Now, um, I, I, I do say this. I know I'm, I can be complicated when things don't need to be complicated, and I'm trying not to do that. I know I've got to learn every day. I mean, every time I get in the pulpit, I have to improve. If I don't improve, we start to lag behind, and I want to do that. I want my family to be lifted up. I want my family to see God glorified. I want my family to grow in Christ. I want all those things because... We, we love each other. We care about each other in that way. And I care about you in that way. So what I've got tonight are really just two points. Which is strange. Just two points. Two very pointed points, I might add. One, the first one. We're going to talk about awe. The awe of God comes first from the Word of God. We might as well get the punchline out. This is about the Word of God. And I understand in Acts chapter 2 that Acts chapter 2 verse 43 very clearly connects the awe that people saw with the signs and wonders done by the apostles. Now, what's going to happen more often within our culture, within the church culture of the 21st century, it's gone on for more than 100 years now, but it's really coming to a head right now. I'm, gonna make, I'm not going to make excuses, but I'm going to provide a reason for this, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. And the big reason for this is, is that the world is such a difficult world. It's such a hard world to live in. And, and I think I've mentioned this to some of you. Um, uh, we are very proud to have Brother Rudy Packus as our oldest member, right? My church growing up probably didn't have an 80-year-old. Not one. 
You know why? Because people died in their 70s. Right? Y'all remember that very well. One or two people were going to make it longer than that. But for the most part, you go back very far, folks, and some of you who are older than me know exactly what I'm talking about. People just didn't live really long lives. Nowadays, we're almost disappointed if we don't make it to 90, right? The world is a radically different world, isn't it? It's a world in which, I'll say something else, if you're in your 60s, in this world right now, chances are you're probably still working, right? Six-year-olds still working. There was a time when six-year-olds weren't working, right? They retired before then. I'll be working in my 60s, definitely, no doubt about it. 65, 70, probably still be working. I'm going to complain about it. I think it's a great thing because I think we're made for work and not for, not for laziness, to be honest with you. We're made to labor. That's why God created us. And so, so labor can be a very, very good thing in our lives. But the point is this, is that the, the way the lifespan worked for a long, long time has now become extremely exaggerated, hasn't it? People just live a lot longer. Now, the assumption can go with people living a lot longer. Please give me just a second to explain this. Is this, I, this assumption, it's a faulty assumption, that because we're living longer, we're happier. <laughs> we're not, are we? We're not more content. 90s can be tough on people, can't they? I've counseled a lot of 90-year-olds, and I've counseled a lot of 80-year-olds, a lot of 70-year-olds. Probably more of those than young people. I think young people expect to be a little bit clueless about stuff. Old people don't expect to get, be, still be clueless about things. But the fact of the matter is, you still are going to run into a whole lot of things in your life that you have no answer to, right? Just when you thought you are going to have it all together, you found out you are no more together now than you've ever been in your life, right? Now, here's the, here's my, my, here's the reason I say that, brother. is because the world that that 90-year-old and that 80-year-old and 70-year-old, that, that these people with longer lifespans are living in, is not a simpler world, but a way more complicated world, right? I know offense, even when I was a boy, guys, I'm not that old, there just weren't that many ways to get in trouble. Just a handful of ways. It was pretty easy to avoid. My goodness, you can get in a lot of trouble and never leave your house in the 21st century, can't you? You just couldn't do that. You just couldn't do that back 50 years ago. The world is, 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 is interlaid with these kind of woven traps. And you don't know where they all are. We really feel the, the fragility of being a person. And so for that reason, I think there are tons of people, believers, who legitimately, the, what, the Bible saying it, it's not that it's not enough, but they're so broken and so fragile, they desperately need for God to like shout it in their face. They need this feeling of signs and wonders. They need to, to go and see just the miraculous right there in front of them. Alright? Now, just because it is an express need in our brokenness, it does not mean that God bends His truth to it now, does it? Those are not the same things. Because we're broken about a whole lot of things that God simply does not change for us, right? He just does not. As much as we can be just, just destroyed by it, people still get sick and they still die, don't they? We still pray bitter prayers. Bitter prayers. And God hasn't changed that for us, has He? Despite the fact that we need that more than we need anything else, right? Our only response, the only biblical response is, come Lord Jesus, come. Don't tarry. Come as quickly as possible. We want the death of death. 
So when we talk about this idea, and I understand that in that one verse, it seems to be linked together. We want to take it beyond that to a solid New Testament place and a solid biblical place. And I want to show you, first off, Charles Spurgeon confronts this notion of signs and wonders because they were growing in the, eight, in the 19th century. Absolutely growing in the 19th century. Um, about 1835 was that first birth of, of what would be called uh, 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 Pentecostalism. And then by 1906, 1907, Azusa Street, you'll see what's called Neo-Pentecostalism. So you, we'd been through, the, the, the Christian community had been through a couple of these upsurges. Um, for the 19, 1835 event, it really culminates in upstate New York, of all places. It's something called the Second Great Awakening that produces um, the Millerites and, and the Seventh-day Adventists and uh, the uh, uh, Charles Grandison Finney and all these kinds of people that, to be honest with you, are really famous people in the, in the study of church history. All right? Just a little bit of, just a little bit of, of uh, factual information to go along with this. So Spurgeon had seen this in the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, in England and in the Americas. And we see it in the 21st century come to kind of its culmination because people are just so desperate for the unique touch of the hand of God. I said stemming from our frailty and not from our strength. But this is what Spurgeon said. He said, it's not the gospel and it's its own sign and wonder. It's not this a miracle of miracles that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish. What Spurgeon says, for those who seek the sign and wonder, the greatest miracle, the greatest sign and wonder of all is the gospel itself. You want to really see the signs and wonders of God, there they are laid out for you. Right there. Perhaps it's best to define the term now as it will apply to our pursuit of the New Testament church experience in a 21st century context. We want to talk about what is really all. What are we looking for? Because I can say, you know, I remember it was a few years ago, Kind of all of us who preach kind of got in love with this idea of, of, of desperation, desperate for God. And one of the things we talked about later after we preached a lot about that was that I don't think anybody ever said what we're talking about. We used kind of a newfangled churchy term, right? But nobody really understood what we meant by it. And so one of the things I want to be clear about is I want to define to you exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to awe. What is awe? If we're supposed to have awe in this house, we're supposed to have awe. How do we define that? Well, awe in the church is the product of the presence of God and not the works of men or women. Now, that's the first thing. We have awe because of God and not because I did anything or said anything. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's not my efforts that can bring awe to your heart. I can't do that. When God's people acknowledge the infinite nature of the true God, awe is the response to, I guess the best way I could put it is this, that Isaiah 6 moment, when the heavens open up and you see God in all His glory, you see that the train of His robe fills the entire universe, and you're just struck with fear and adoration and everything in the world that would respond to something that beautiful and that immense, that's awe. Awe is when I embrace God for who He is in His ultimate Godness. That's awe. When I uh, acknowledge the infinite nature of the true God, His immensity, His power, justice, wrath, beauty, holiness, and love. When I get the whole package. Because remember, one of those things that when we are seekers 
And we know seeking is not really a thing we really talk about because it's not really a thing. But when we are seekers within the house of God, we almost always seek to feed our own needs, right? I'll come in here all the time wanting a God of love or a God of mercy. You know why I want a God of love or a God of mercy? Because I've done something. Because I'm guilty. I need, I need parole. I need pardon from God. And so I can focus on that one attribute of God that right now I, I find the most, the most necessity for in my life. And so we're trying to work against that because if I'm just seeking the God I want, when I stop wanting something from God, I stop seeking Him. But when I start embracing Him for everything that He is, including His wrath. Yeah, I mean, in a mean way, I threw that in there, guys. I didn't have to. I could have made that list without it. So this comes from my brain. Wrath. God's wrathful. Bible's abundantly clear. God is angry. God is hellfire, measurable, angry. Why shouldn't He be? He's infinitely worthy and infinitely holy. And He's given the infinite gift of Christ for our sins and yet people still spurn Him. Why wouldn't He be, why wouldn't he be angry? Just be honest. You had not given anything. And you get mad at people all the time. You have broken hearts and lied and cheated and stolen. And don't act like you haven't because by the clearest definition the Bible gives us, we are all guilty of all those things, right? Of everything there. And yet we still get mad at people who do us wrong. They may be, in the grand scheme of things, less guilty as a life than you are. You may have done far worse things, but you have the audacity to get mad at them. So how angry is God who's never sinned? Who's always been holy. How angry could he be? Wrath has to define him. But, but he's so complete that his wrath doesn't overwhelm. See, with me, my wrath would overwhelm. If I had the power to settle scores, buddy, I would settle scores. I'll say it right now like I wouldn't. In the middle of the night, I'd be angry all over again, and I would be pushing buttons on people. Do you know why? Because for the first time, the wrath of a little man had some power to go along with it. But yet God doesn't. He gives us grace. He gives us the common grace. The building doesn't fall down. Then catch fire and burn us all up. Yeah, common grace. He loves us despite the fact that we might spurn Him all the time. He loves us in this room despite the fact that some of us may have come into this room and dishonored Him. But yet He still loves us. Because He's not all wrath. He's not just wrath. But He is wrath. When we embrace everything, the church is struck with awe. As the psalmist records, the awe that's experienced by the people is not the result of human work. Back in Psalm 65, verse 8. It is a response to the evident miracles of God, including the rising and setting of the sun. This is another one of those things that's so simple, folks. It's so simple. Where do I get my awe? I open my eyes. Where do I get my awe? I open my eyes. I go out, I see it. Now, I don't get to do it all the time. I'm like you guys. Even in the summer, I feel like so busy. I feel like my days are just going like, like running like water through a leaky tap. You know, they're just gone almost instantly. But in the mornings, I go out about 6 o'clock and do my little run. You know I'm talking about? It is not anything great to look at. Some of you have seen it. It is not Olympic, is it? No. No way. No way. But I do it. Another morning, I'm running along and a black runner slithers in front of me. I'm not scared of snakes. I love snakes. They're fantastic. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that. 
I was just joyous for the next mile or two because I saw one of God's creatures that comes slithering through doing what he does. He doesn't know he's, enough, he's a representation of the curse. All he's looking for is rats, right? As far as he's concerned, he's plugged in and doing what he's supposed to do. But there's that thing comes slithering through. Like, oh, look how fantastic. I run along and little, little cottontail rabbits, they don't run from me. They'll stay there. I can almost reach down and touch them as I run by. Then they'll scatter. But they're everywhere. This idea that either in the rising or the setting of the sun or, or the, the Grand Canyon we talked about so many times as an example. I've never actually seen it. I've been down at the bottom of Niagara Falls and the Maid of the Mist and looked up and thought, wow. And it's tiny. It's, it's, it's microscopic in comparison to the God that created it. His immensity is, is immeasurable. That we get awe, first and foremost, from just opening our eyes and seeing what God did. Hey, um, anybody seen your child born? Awe, isn't it? Wow. You knew what was going to happen, didn't you? But when it happened, it was totally different. Totally different. Not expecting that at all. Not expecting the flood of emotion that comes in almost immediately, doesn't it? Immediately. Once again, that enormity of God that's seen through little things and big things. That, that's, that's the awe. That's, that's what the psalm said, even the setting of the sun. Everything we see around us declares the glory of the Lord, as Paul accuses, accuses in Romans 1.20. Right? It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the big creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God, Paul, God through Paul clearly says it right here. You want to see God, He is evident in everything that's been made. And He doesn't just say it, He is clearly seen. Clearly seen. If you say He's not there, you have to make up a complicated lie to get Him out of it. You have to create um, evolution. You have to create some complicated, nonsensical philosophy that says He's not there. Because Paul very clearly 2,000 years ago said, oh, by the way, you're going to see him every time you see this. And I might add, we do. Evolution doesn't give me chill bumps. Creation does. Evolution doesn't put a lump in my throat. Creation does every single time. Evolution's cold. Creation is warm. Every time. And things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's funny that, listen... In the end, he nails it. He says, by the way, you're without excuse now. Tribesmen in equatorial Africa have never heard the name of Jesus without excuse. Some guy on top of a mountain somewhere who, is, uh, who has uh, become a hermit and, and avoided the truth, no excuse. Because he's there in everything. And you don't have to look very hard. He leaps out at you. It's one of those cool things. that when you start seeing God in things, you start seeing God in everything, Right? It's like a switch gets turned on. A way of seeing that you could never do before. You can now do. You know, I always remind you in the most stupid way, and if I take your time, I do apologize, but you remember that, that movie, uh, Field of Dreams? About the guy builds a baseball field in his corn patch, right? It's Kevin Costner, right? It's a cool little movie. It's cute. You remember when the little girl almost chokes on the hot dog? And then they, you know, the, 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 the guy comes off the field and, and saves her because he'd always been supposed to be a doctor, not a baseball player. And then the brother-in-law who couldn't see anything, so they could see the baseball players. Because once it gets turned on, you can see everything, right? He, not, he didn't see, could, could never see the game. 
They're cheering and laughing. You couldn't see it. Second, it's turned on, it's turned on. Same thing with faith. It's much lesser, incredibly greater. One is a stupid little movie and one saves. But the reality is that when God changes that, that, that perspective, that understanding, you'll see it everywhere you go. A snake slithers across your path. And so there's the glory of God. Created that. The, in its intricacy, created a way of moving for that creature that no other creature has. Serpentine locomotion. Wow. The intricacy of creation. Through our creation, God declares His glory so that the world might acknowledge His dominion over them. He does this so we know who's the boss. Oh, as the stars make their journeys across the night sky, the Lord proclaims His sovereignty and professes that Christ is ruler over it all. Go outside tonight when the sky is clear and just have the audacity to look up. Dare yourself, just look up. Bundle up in the winter when the sky is dark in a place like Mize and, and, it's, and the, the sky is exceptionally clear. Go out and just look up and see the Milky Way. There's, there's the glory of God. Christ rules it all. They got the Isaiah 6 Lord whose robe fills the entire universe is the Savior who bore our sins on Calvary. We, why be in awe? Because that God that expresses Himself throughout all of nature is the Creator God, the one who spoke into being Jesus Himself. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. So the one who created it all, the, the, the very cells in our body, the atoms in existence, the subatomic particles of which He has everyone ordered, all of the truth of that, that one right there hung on a cross for our sins. Why be in awe? Because the God who created everything restored it with His own blood. Bought it back from a curse. Bought it back from hell and oblivion. That God did that. That is the ultimate reason for awe in creation. The Psalms are replete with the mention of the appropriate response of the human heart to the divine glory of the Lord. And in Psalm 211, David commands for us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The service of the church dictated by fear and the celebration of the church tempered by trembling. So when we talk about awe, we talk about something, folks, that has a very, very, very clear relationship to fear. Awe defines our interaction with the living God and Savior of all humankind. How do we define that interaction? Awe. What's worship? Worship is awe set to music. It's the right response. Now, once again, there's the thing. I know we'll walk away with this, and if I don't finish, I, I apologize. I'm doing my best here, folks. But I think it's complex. I want to make sure you get it. And that is this. I am capable of coming in here and singing in the right songs and, 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 and paying attention and taking notes and all those things and missing the element that our church must have, and that is all. I can miss that. And I think awe rests on me. I can be in the middle of a creation that declares the glory of God and not look up, right? I can come into the sanctuary of the living God where He declares His presence will be. The awe of God is all upon this. I can come in here and allow myself to be so burdened by my own problems 
so overwhelmed by my own condition or circumstances that I can neglect the God who is good despite my sadness. I'm capable of doing that. You can come in here and talk about all, all, all day long and you can miss the awe. And I think here's the reason why I would think that's such an important thing. What we want is the chill. We want the lump in the throat and we want the, the goose pimples, right? And the, that's in the awe. That's in the acknowledgement that the God who feels so far away is not far away at all. But He's right here. He's in our presence. The God that we pray to is leaning close. He's not Zeus on Olympus. He's right here. The awe of God restrains our hearts, as David tells us in Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your own beds and be silent. Say la. The natural human reaction to want justice for every perceived slight is muted and canceled by the awe that we have for the Word of God. I think that one jumped out at me because I believe that I am that way because I say I'm not that way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know it's clear as mud. What I mean is this. Is that if somebody does something to me that is hurtful and you ask me, do you know what I will say? That really doesn't bother me. It's okay. I still love them. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm good. But you know what's really going on in the inside? A lot of very, very, very pushed down emotions that I won't dare take my hand off. Because if I do, you know what will happen? They'll come out everywhere. I've lived like that my whole life, repressing everything. And so the reason why I'm so, I, I so mean to, to include Psalm 4-4 in this is because I know I'm that guy that wants that justice. I know I'm that guy that deep, deep down wants revenge on my enemies. I know I'm that guy that deep, deep, deep down inside, so much so that I'll never acknowledge it. Do you know what I mean? You can ask me, and I won't be lying because I'll believe it's true. But deep, deep down, I will, be, I will want the accounts to be settled. And God reminds me when He says, Be angry, do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. You know what He reminds me of? I am just as guilty. There's nobody who has wronged me that is more guilty than I am. I may not have ever lied to somebody, lied to that person, but I've lied. I may not have ever stolen from that person, but I've stolen. I may not have ever hated that person, but I've hated others. I've done things. I am not some bastion. You know, you can cry out for justice all the time if you're really a just person. If you're an unjust person like I am, you really can't cry out for justice. You need to fear justice. You know what God says? God says, be still. He, no, He says, He says, be angry and do not sin. You know what? You can't keep yourself being angry. If somebody hurts your feelings, you're going to be angry about it. But you better think about who you really are. You better think about whether or not you've done something similar to someone like that. And we also, well, I've never done about anything like that. I'm like, yeah, you better think real hard about that. You better think really, really hard about what you've said and what you've done. What you've imagined doing. Because remember, motivations are sinful in, in Christ's standing. If I hate somebody in my heart, same thing as murder. 
So before I go getting really angry, angry enough to do something wicked, then I better think of who I really am. Who I really am. The natural human reaction to want justice for every perceived side is muted and canceled by the awe that we have for the Word of God. Justice always becomes an ugly word when our personal sins are considered, presumable, uh, presumably on our beds at night. The Bible's so practical. I don't know about you guys, maybe you sleep like rocks. But when I'm troubled and I hit that, hit that bed at night, I will be staring at the ceiling. And the God, I can deny some stuff during the daylight, I can't deny it at night. I can act like I'm one person in, during the daytime. At night, I, I know who I am at night. I know what I've done at night. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 46.10, To be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Truly, as people striving and scheming for every advantage, we do too much and engage with the Lord too little. What's his recommendation? Be still and know Him. The, the, the opposite of the 21st century life, the 21st century mindset, most of us, I think this is one of those reasons why church can be so hard. Because there's so many people out there, so there are a lot of people out there who are fishing, who really want this experience, this personalized experience with God, because they are so broken and so hurt, and they feel like they need that private touch so badly. At the same time, you know why there's so much pressure to do so much in church? Because there's so many people trying to just, be honest with you, busy themselves to the next day. Because what happens when you stop being busy? Truth comes flooding in, doesn't it? Don't you got things to do? You take your mind off of it? And God just doesn't let us escape. God doesn't let us deny who we are. What does He say? Be still! Stop doing too much. Stop trying to do everything in the world. Stop wasting your life on senseless busyness. Because sometimes, you know what I mean? To grow, you've got to do what? You've got to confront yourself. Sometimes you've got to stop for a minute and God's got to tell you who you are. Because sometimes we forget. We lose touch with who we are. And He has to remind us. Ultimately, we can mistake... Excuse me. I'm sorry, I was the wrong place. His recommendation is to be still and know Him as we ponder Him, as we attempt to know the God of creation and salvation. The psalmist writes in Psalm 68.35 that awesome is God from His sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to His people. Blessed be God. The glimpse of the heavenly God upon His eternal throne teaches us that faith is in the one who rules without exception. In Psalm 119, 120, the psalmist describes the agony that he faces when pondering the Word of God by saying, My flesh trembles for fear of you. I'm afraid of your judgments. Ultimately, we can mistakenly believe that the God of the heavens works for us. That Christ died at our behest and that justice what we want or believe that we need. We can believe, we can lose sight of the fact that God is the ruler and we are the servant. We can become personally offended when he doesn't see things our way. Who does that sound like in the scriptures? It was Jonah, right? It was Jonah. Jonah wanted God to curse the Ninevites. And when God did exactly what God wanted to do because he is God, Jonah got mad about it and pouted. Folks, 
I'm not speaking about anybody in this room, but I've been in church leadership for more than two decades now, and I've seen a lot of grown folks pout. Just pout. Just not get your way in a boat and do what? Leave the next Sunday. Be gone. Do you know why? Because they're children. They're spoiled children. What they've done is dishonored God. They've acted like it was about them. They've taken that great equation that is God's, God's sovereignty over the church and the gospel message that, that proceeds to the entire nations and they put themselves at the center. Here's the problem. Jesus is in the center. It's not you and it's not me. Not at all. You know, the world will always adopt a shoddy, idolatrous, and human-centered form of justice. People get in their way. That's different. Well, I'll just quit. If I'm... Quit. Because that's what, that's what idolaters want. Idolaters want it to be about them. Idolaters refuse to have it be about him. See, we'll always do that. We will adopt that shoddy, idolatrous, and human-centered form of, judgment, of justice. I get my way. Is a human-centered thing. Now look, this is church, guys. We've seen that a lot, haven't we? People who just pouted and kicked their feet until they got their way. Now here's the thing. We put up with it because we love people. And we need to put up with it because we love them. But here's the reality. It dishonors God. It's sinful. It's wicked. It's what it is. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I understand that's how the world works. When my awe flows only from the word of God and the person of Christ, then what the world does in reaction to his sovereignty does not stir a hateful reaction. It doesn't matter if you're on this committee and everybody on there is just being all petty about everything. You know why? Because your awe doesn't come from them. It's almost clear. He says, look, the princes are persecuting me. People in power are persecuting me. And I don't care because my heart stands in all of the word. Because in the end, my relationship is with God by way of his word. All that I can see is the glory of the words of the Lord. Now here, very quickly. I'm way behind. Fear is an essential aspect of the awe that we must have in our church. Fear and awe go hand in hand. Awe is not just joy. All right? As I approached this topic, being a pastor and desiring to be a theologian for the people I love, I was immediately intimidated by this topic. And ideas esoteric is awe is difficult to quantify. And I'm forced to acknowledge that many groups have followed their leaders into error and made a mockery of biblical truth in practice. People so hungry and the leaders, man, want to give the people what they wanted and they wind up going headlong into error. The great source of a collective awe as a church has to be God himself. Scriptures leave us no choice but to celebrate this truth. In Psalm 33, 8, King David tells us to let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord of the world stand in awe of Him. There we go. In one, one passage, fear and awe, hand in hand. I have awe because I have a healthy fear. How can I not stand still and know Him or consider the wondrous works of God? How can I not, not uh, be angry but not sin? How can I not go home and, and, and consider my ways upon my couch? Because I don't fear Him. Because I don't really fear God. I have somehow adopted a, a gospel, adopted a theology that says that God is toothless like a hound. It's not anything to be afraid of. Let 
The awe that we naturally owe to Christ is mingled with the theologically sound fear of the Lord that comes from knowing Him through gospel salvation. Because we are not those who just, who've intellectually learned about a God, we are those who know God and are known by God by way of the gospel through the Holy Spirit and His regenerative work and by the blood of Jesus Christ, because all of that is true, we now have both awe and both fear. Those are the works of the gospel in us. We fear now because we understand the perfection of God and our sorry estate. We fear not just because God's big. We fear because He's holy and because we know we are not. Does that mean we tremble always? No, it does not mean that. But it means that we're always we always consider Him first. We always consider the Lord first. Add to this notion the wisdom of Solomon that dictates in Proverbs 1.7 that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Only by way of a healthy and informed fear of God can we have knowledge. Wisdom or the instruction of the inerrant word. Our newly sought after awe is an aspect of fearing the triune Lord in the right way motivated by the gospel. The manifestation of this kind of connection between biblical truth and the character of man or woman is described by Isaiah in Isaiah 66 too. All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But it, this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What's so beautiful about this idea? What's so beautiful about this idea of holy fear mixed with the right response of awe, of really seeing God for who He, who he truly is. What's really so great about that, what's so fantastic about that, is the idea that it really does change me. We're not talking about works-based. I'm not talking about you changed so God will love you. I'm saying that God has loved you and extended to you salvation that has radically changed you from the inside out and now you have the proclivity that you never had before and that proclivity means you can now be humble and contrite. You can now be a way that people are not by themselves. People are contemptuous and rebellious and wicked. That's who we are by nature. The awe for which we should be desperate as a church is found in our humility. The willingness of our hearts and spirits to embrace the ongoing discipline of repentance. Our life in Christ is defined by repentance. It's not something we do once. It's something we never get to stop doing. It's what defines how I interact with my God. And the, and the beauty of it is, is that I, I, I get to continue to do it. Drawn to Him every single day. Look, God will not bless the haughty with awe. They are satisfied enough in themselves. Why is there so little awe in the church? Because there's so little humility. There are too many people that are satisfied in their own knowledge and themselves, and they're never going to humble themselves. And that's what's so weird to me is that preachers like that, who have a great deal of knowledge, but they're not humble. And I'm like, how can you look at this and feel like anything but an ant, but a slug, but some worthless bug, in relation to who God is. All this is is a magnifying glass for God's immensity and, and a magnifying gla glass for my sin. When I read the Bible, I know I'm more of a sinner than I ever thought I was. It's directly connected to our continuous interaction with the Word of God. True awe comes from the testimony of the Bible concerning the glory of Christ, the sinfulness of man, and the generosity of the Savior. Not from parlor tricks. No matter how much we feel that we need them. Look, here's an example. 
would be that collectively as a people, we pray for someone to be healed from a disease. And despite our prayers, this person is not healed. The temptation of the church could be to be devastated because we prayed and the Lord seemingly refused our petition. Despite the biblical truth expressed in Luke twenty two forty two, where Christ prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What God clearly said to Christ was, no, my precious child. Christ prayed it, but he surrendered himself to the will of God. We understand that every prayer we have ever prayed in our lives is whether we want to do it or not, surrender to the will of God. Does God not say, does God say no? Not really. There's just some things we're going to pray that aren't part of the will of God. If it were up to me, the people I love would go on forever and ever and ever. Right? Forever. I would pray that everybody knew and everybody loved would be healed immediately. If it were up to me. God's wisdom had to be beyond that. God wants more for us than to go on living in a hateful and cursed world. He wants more for us. Clearly we understand that every prayer is subject to the will of the Father. And it should be because the Father's will is perfect as God the Father is perfect. We don't lose when He says no, we win. Because His will is always right. What God wants to do is always right. Even if we feel it's wrong. Even if we feel it hurts us. It is still always right. However, we are as flawed and broken people. We can find our faith tied inextricably to single Meaningful prayers for family, friends, marriages, financial deliverance, etc. I can't tell you how many times people in the two decades I've been doing this, how many times I've been with people that prayed and prayed and prayed for a wife to come back or a son to straighten up or, or a job to be restored or some type of financial misery to be alleviated, something, someone to be healed. And because that prayer was not answered, those people gave up on the faith. I can tell you how many times this happened. They gave God, they gave God an ultimatum. See this my way, God, or I can't believe in you anymore. Now I know what's like to have a broken heart about things. I get it. I totally understand. But I also am, am have to be man enough at this age to understand this that I do not understand the complexity of the world. I don't understand the joys that God brings to people after salvation. I read about them. I know what they are, but I have never experienced them. I trust God. I trust God in those things. I trust God that, that the cares of this world are light and momentary afflictions crushed under weight of glory. I, I trust God in that matter. I do. But I can tell you people I've met in my life that just did for them, their faith boiled down to their husband or their wife coming back. Or restoration with their kids. Or their mom and daddy being healed from a disease. It boiled down to one thing. One thing. As difficult as it is, and I understand the plight. We can't let our faith boil down to one, one prayer. For that church, that person always become an idol 
The experience of God has replaced the declared reality of God. The safest, most reliable awe that any believer can experience is the one that comes from interacting with the Word of the Bible. What should be our redeemed reaction to the truth of Hebrews 12, 28-29, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What should be our reaction? The writer outlines the evidence in the first verse and then presents the church with a proper adoration in the second verse. The culmination does not just... The culmination, not just of the previous verses like, say, 12 through 14, that say, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Like those Israelites, he's talking about those Israelites that stood at the base of the mountain and saw the glory of the Lord like this great and mighty storm upon the mountainside, but they were warned by God not to even touch the base of the mountain because of God's everlasting lasting holiness and the colossal depths of their, of man's depravity. They're supposed to draw the right conclusion. Christ is so much greater and more holy than any man, than any of them. That when I pray to God, it's not that I should surrender myself, say, God, whatever, God, your will be done, whatever. God, please do your will. Please, God, do your will. Because if you do, God, I know this is what's best. I will learn over time to accept it, God. To embrace it and to love it. But do your will. We do not deserve Him. But by grace we have received the Savior. Understand that, that, very, that enormous piece of evidence. Why surrender yourself to the will of God? Because you were born again. You did not deserve Christ. Neither did I, no doubt. But you did not deserve Christ. There was nothing in your life that God should have preserved. There's nothing in your life that God should have done anything with but cast it into hell. But nonetheless, what did God do? He has preserved you eternally in Himself. He has given you the Savior. Through the blood of Christ, we've been made acceptable to God. We do that strange language in Southern Baptist Church about oh, accepting Jesus. Here's the reality. I'm never going to accept Jesus because I'm hateful by nature. What the problem is, is Him accepting me. I'm the sinner. I'm the wicked one. I'm the one who hates not just my enemies, but my friends. I'm the one that would undo my family if given an inch by the living God. I'm the hateful one. I'm the evil one. I'm the one that needs accepting. By the blood of Christ, we collectively have been made acceptable to God. What was once nothing but the depth and blackness of sin so horrible that no one could stand it, that God couldn't even look on it, has now been made acceptable to God by that blood. He died for your sins. He paid the price. You were once an outcast. You are now embraced. The mountain that once we could not let a, put a foot on is now ours to climb. Must surrender to the will of God because the mountain's yours. You're a child of the king. The unshakable kingdom is the blood inheritance of our salvation. You can't lose it. It is unshakable, not just because it cannot be attacked or will never surrender to attack, but because you cannot lose it either. It is the right of your blood. The blood placed upon you has given you an inheritance that you cannot lose. So what should we do? Offer to God what He deserves. Worship. 
God deserves worship. What does He deserve? He deserves reverence. There's no doubt about that. Reverence. Hush over our lives when we're in the presence of God. Act like we are in God's presence when we're in His presence. And then finally, what else? Awe. In the depths of what the Scripture says, it leads us to one conclusion. I owe God awe. He is the one who's high and lifted up. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you.